This is the Innovation Civilization Podcast, and my name is Wahid. For the first time ever in the history of audio podcasting, we'll bring to you an episode exclusively focused on the history of Mongol innovation, technology, and governance. My name is Marie Favreau. I'm Associate Professor of History at Paris Nanterre University, and I'm the author of The Horde, How the Mongols Changed the World. What started in the early 13th century with just a handful of nomads from Genghis Khan would go on to rule one of the largest land empires the world has ever seen, starting all the way to the east from Korea, through China, Central Asia, Russia, Persia, and to even parts of Eastern Europe like Crimea and modern-day Ukraine. The Mongols absorbed a lot from their subjects. They submit people and immediately they tried to figure who were the best craftsmen, who were the best scientists, and they hired them. And they asked them to be loyal to the Mongols, but then they financed their research even. So they have this very interesting attitude towards sciences or technologies or innovations. As soon as they feel that it can serve their power, then they will be very supportive. The Mongols were very interested in what is astronomy, cartography, geography today, but in a very modern sense of the term. They wanted accurate maps. And what they did, first they built or they financed the building of observatories in Mongolia today. They wanted one also in what is Beijing today. They also financed a new huge observatory, big building in what is Tabriz today in this area. And there you would have scientists working, so astronomers, mathematicians, people who are coming from everywhere from Persia, from the Arabic world, very advanced. We also talk about the very long-term innovation view that the Mongols took in terms of funding projects. In my work, what I want to show to the people is that without them, without their will, without their money, without their energy, without their power, none of this would have been possible. And the beginning, what we think is the modern world, we think a lot about 15th, 16th century, really believe that without the Mongol moments, it would have taken much more time, probably. That's why Mongols, if you say, okay, what did they change in terms of sciences themselves? Well, I think they finance everything. And for a long period of time, they had really long-term views. They would finance over generations. That's key. When you do research, actually, you know that it's not because you get a grant for two years that you're going to invent anything. So you need to have a real support behind for a long period. We also talk about how the Mongols dealt with challenges in running mass-scale innovation projects within a multi-ethnic empire. The interesting thing is they forced people to work together so they built team and people were sort of not necessarily happy to because they had to disclose their secrets. So we have very interesting moment when Chinese scientists were forced to work with Persian scientists together and they produce specific objects. We also talk about the Mongol agricultural production system and research throughout the empire. The taxation system sort of supported agricultural production and they would also finance 
scholars working on treaties on agriculture. They were very interested in how to grow rice, what kind of variety of rice you can grow in such area. They also promoted a reflection on farming at, at a high level. That's very fascinating. We often talk about Mongols and the destruction they brought with them. For instance, the destruction of Baghdad and its libraries. But in reality, though, Mongol rulers ushered in an incredibly thriving intellectual life, which focused on innovation and innovative ideas. Mongol loved books. They loved manuscripts. If you're a wealthy man, you have manuscripts, or you want to see manuscripts or paintings that produced by the best scholars of the time. They were like almost conferences, those debates. It's We have this in all the sources. Mongol love debate, love putting people together and ask them to debate, like a Buddhist priest, a Muslim sheikh, a Christian Franciscan friar, all together, and they had to debate. In terms of innovations in governance, we also covered how Mongols practiced a form of early democracy, or proto-democracy as we call it today, which was more of a consensus based collective decision-making mechanism. Democracy needs debates, it needs time. The Mongols had this ability when there's succession moment to take sometimes months, sometimes years to decide on a successor, on a new government. And it was seen for long in the scholarship as something very negative. Oh, they cannot decide, or they take too much time. But I think it's the other way around. Actually, it's you need time to debate and to discuss. A succession system that goes too fast, without even in discussion. It's not a healthy system. Of course, it's not the democracy the way we live it today. But still, this is very interesting to see how they were able to sit at the table for hours and discuss and not fight. That and much more coming right up in this very action-packed episode. Stay tuned. Marie, thanks a lot for being on the Innovation Civilization podcast. What a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have this conversation today with you. That's awesome. So let's get right into it, Marie. I'm quite interested. I read your book a few weeks ago, and I was like super interested in what you came about. And I was at a talk previously, like three weeks ago in London, and they were also kind of talking about your book, which was quite interesting. That's how you kind of got to know. But before we start, can you tell me a bit more about yourself, like who you are and what made you fascinated to you know go into Mongol history of all things that are there to study? Ah, yes, of course. Well, look, I'm French. Actually, I'm from Paris, and I was just a student at the university studying history. I was fascinated by history, especially medieval period. I loved medieval period because I thought that medieval period is not too many documents, but still enough documents. It's better than you know previous period, and it's easier to deal with. Because when you look at contemporaries, mm -hmm. it's like a lot, lot of documents. So I felt good in the Middle Ages. And then how I discovered the Mongols. Actually, I was, I think, my third year at university. And for the first time, I heard about the Mongol Empire. And I've never heard of it before. At school, nobody told me, my mm -hmm. parents. I mean, it was so yeah. And I felt so curious about it. So that's how it started, actually. <laughs> wow, it's incredible. And for me, the thing about Mongols is basically that, unlike other empires, like you said, even though they had such a big huge landmass, the continuity of the actual physical existence of it is not there and people don't even talk about it, right? They just talk about, you know, Genghis Khan and a killing machine, right? So, so it's quite interesting, basically. Yes, absolutely. When we know about Mongolia today, the size of the territory, the country, mm -hmm. it's so different from the Mongol period, Mongol Empire mm -hmm. period. And actually, so I work more on Russia, I mean, the western part of the Mongol Empire. So the Mongol I work on, I study, are not based in what we call 
Mongolia today. People, it's sometimes hard to understand, but they have to deconstruct the map of the modern world. It's another world, very different. And let's define our terms there. So for the purpose of our listeners who don't know anything about the Mongols, can you tell us who the Mongols are? And then specifically the Jockets, I believe, that you basically study who they are? Yes, the term itself, Mongols, appeared in Chinese sources around the 10th century. Before, we don't know, we don't have enough document to say, but the term we see it in the 10th century. What we have to understand is these Mongols were different nomadic groups. There's not like one people or one population called Mongol in the 10th century. The first oh, political organization dates back to the 12th century, more or less three generations before Genghis Khan. So maybe at the time of his great-grandfather, you see. Mm-hmm attempt to sort of unify the population and first attempt to sort of promote the word Mongol as a nation term, you see. And Jenkins mm. will do that like, and will, will be very successful later on in the end of 12th century and 13th century. And this was based in Inner Mongolia today? It was based, well, not really in Inner Mongolia today, more in the north, in North. Okay. East Mongolia today. So it's really close to the Russian border and actually not so far from the Chinese border, but really northeast of Eurasia. That's okay. the beginning. And then with the conquest during the time of Genghis Khan, during the time of the Khans mm-hmm. and Great Sons, the conquest mm-hmm. would transform the size of the empire and he would go up to, so if I speak about the east, up to Korea, actually, it would go up to southern China, it would go up to northern India, it would go up to, so in Central Asia, you have, we can include a great part of Afghanistan, a great part of what is Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan today. It would cover all of, almost all of what we call Russia today, up to Eastern Europe, in fact, up to the Black Sea, up to Bulgaria today, almost included, in fact. The Byzantine Empire was on the border, on the Western border, and paid tribute to the Mongols. And so, a huge, probably one of the biggest uh, in history. Yeah, and I think it's Pax Mongolica, composed of Ukraine as well, right? On the kind of Western side of things. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah. Like. And okay. that's part I know better, because I really work on the Western part of the Mongol Empire. So, on Ukraine, Crimea, I did a lot of research on Crimea. That's very interesting. So, basically, the Pax Mongolica Mongols during the kind of peak period is basically Ukraine all the way to like Korea, you said, right? So that's the huge landmass that these bunch of nomads from the steppes conquered and ruled over. Absolutely, huge landmass. And also we have to think about southern Siberia as a very area, like a trade hub, which sounds perhaps strange today because we think that Siberia is so far away and the climate is complicated there. But actually during the Mongol period, Mongols were really people from the north, from the cold. They know how how to deal with cold weather very well. And area was a key area and it was really like a trade hub, as I said. Okay, that's pretty cool. So your book is basically how the horde and how the Mongols changed the world. So what is the horde? The idea in my book was, so first of all, to make something that was obscure, known to my students, but also general audience, the fact that the Mongols controlled the whole area of what is Russia today for three centuries. We don't have enough literature on that. We have stuff in Russia 
information. What we have is not very, let's say, there are a lot of bias because for the nationalists in Russia, the Mongol period is a very negative period. So it did prevented like Russia to develop into a modern nation in the 18th century. It explained all mm-hmm. the troubles of Russia. So this literature is not useful for, of course, scientific purposes. Right? It's about nation building and modern nation building. So actually, the Mongol period was a very flourishing period in terms of trade, sciences. So I'll come back to this. And that's something I really wanted to show in my book to show to the people. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is I wanted also people to understand the agency of the nomads. So the Mongols remain nomads. They never sit down to rise everywhere in the empire, in their empire. Mm-hmm. They promote the nomadic way of life for ideological reason because they think it's better than the sedentary way of life. That's how they always lived and they will never change that. So the idea was to show why they never sit down to rise and why also they could trigger better than maybe sedentary people trade, exchange, a lot of conversion process also. So what was their input as nomads? And that's where I dig into my sources and find this word horde that is very negative today for us, all of us, like horde is like mm-hmm. a barbarian thing of excited people, right? Destroying and it's very negative. But actually the term for the Mongol period was defined something very, very different. It's really the organization at the level around the Khan, around the rule, the camp, mm-hmm. uh, the families, the nomadic family with him. So it's not only military thing and it's how they call themselves. Actually, they were organized into like hordes. So this is a term mm-hmm. used, right? So in the 13th century, the term appeared everywhere in the Western sources. Suddenly, travelers coming from the West discovered this huge nomadic organization. Mm-hmm. They are impressed and they keep the word. They say, oh, they call it horde. We've never seen that. We don't know what it is. So I decided to keep the word and to explain how it was, you know, organized inside the hordes. Yeah, that's pretty cool. In terms of uh, the horde or the Mongols, there's this general notion that... I'm I've heard growing up when it comes to Mongols is that there are folks who just kill people or there are folks who just kind of pillaged through. And I think how they kind of sacked the Abbasid Baghdad was one of the kind of things that in Islamic history you hear about. So from your research, can you tell me more about what the actual situation is? Were they just kind of like killing machines who just pillaged through and smashed through everything and a lot of rape and a lot of killing as their main leverage to conquer more land? Were they actually some kind of advanced, developed empire. Can you explain more on that? The thing is, there are different times at the beginning of the Mongol Empire. Of course, you have time of conquest. And during the time of conquest, you had moment of harsh fight. And it's like war. So, and Middle Ages war is not, <laughs> it's not sweet thing. So we know there were killings, of course. It's very hard to tell the number mm-hmm. uh, yet. Why? Because in the Middle Ages, sources and numbers you find in the records are not, it's not like today when you're a journalist, you have to, to know and you, and you have have the means to know the number of casualties very often, at least yeah. to give idea. In the Middle yeah. Ages, they are very different. When you want to say a lot, you give a number. That means a lot. It can be millions, but it just means a lot or a lot according to the feeling of the person, right? So it's very hard to give numbers. Anyway, what we know is the Mongols were interested in two things. One was more people, not more lands. So they would not kill entire population because they prefer to have them as 
prisoners. They prefer to integrate people into their armies, not necessarily in good condition, of course. It's, it's, they were prisoners. It was not fun at all. That's clear. Mm. Still, it's very different from like making a genocide, right? So because this is not yeah. for them, wealth, people, it means wealth. It's a very different time if you think about wars today. This was Middle Ages was a very different time. And the other important thing for the Mongols was also they don't do like the Viking things, raiding, you know, and going back mm-hmm, home. Mm-hmm. The Mongols okay. are interested in, it's more like colonies. They really want to live in the places like in the Western Steppe, for instance. The Horde is a new the whole movement of Mongol people from what is mm-hmm. Mongolia today to what is Lower Volga, Western Russia today. They mm-hmm. established themselves there, for instance, the, as they established themselves also in what is Azerbaijan today, in northern uh, Iran also. And they wanted to live there. So their idea was not to like, destroy everything or loot everything and go back home. They wanted to have also a bigger home, not necessarily a new home, but a bigger one. So that's also something we have to understand. Now, regarding the destruction of Baghdad, for instance, what we know also is that there are a lot of emphasizes in the sources, but archaeologists plus historians today are all really clear on the fact that Baghdad was sacked, partially sacked, but certainly not Mm -hmm. erased or entirely destroyed. Baghdad Mm -hmm. actually flourished in the 14th century. And in early 14th century, Baghdad is a key place for trade, and also for religion. So we know that. But of course, we historians have to write about it more, explain this to the audience for people to know more, more precisely about what happened. So so yes, certainly mm. war and violence at the beginning, but not will to destroy all the sedentary people or all the city or this clearly not. That's pretty interesting. And what do you think is the reason that allowed the Mongols to conquer so much land so fast? Is it more like their superior technology? Is it their strategy, you know, yeah, what it is basically, it's quite fascinating the pace at which they assimilate and cannibalize. Yeah, you're right, it's truly fascinating. I think there are several reasons for sure, not one reason. So, one is to start. I mean, maybe we think now good climate in a way. When I say good mm-hmm. climate, I mean rain. So good grass, horse. I live in the UK. I don't think that's a good climate. <laughs> it's all, always raining. <laughs> but yeah, I get what you mean. You're not a herder, but for her, <laughs> rain, is fair, fair, fair. rain is good. If you're a farmer, rain is very good, right? Yeah. So. In the agrarian economy, yeah, definitely. I can imagine, yeah. So that's one aspect. So they were in good health. I mean, the warriors were seen as very strong physically. The families were strong, the Children were in good condition, too strong. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one aspect, of course. The other aspect is the conquests. We should put a plural here, like conquests. That's for a century, because it starts at the end of the 12th century up to the end of the 13th century. So it's a long process. And Han and his son, they did not want to conquer the world. Well, or the question would be, what world would they wanted to be mm-hmm. That's another question. But they want to renegotiate their situation in the world with their neighbors. So each time they would grow, they would have a new neighbor and they would renegotiate with this new neighbor. In terms of exchange, for instance, their mm-hmm. position, they would say, look, we were a small power, but now we are, I don't know, we've conquered Northern China, but now we've entered the biggest city in Central Asia. You used to see us as a small power, we've changed. And now we want to trade with you on different terms. We want you to consider us differently. Other powers would generally say, well, uh, no. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. how we can see in many places how fights mm-hmm. are on frontiers. The other thing is the outside world 
was very fragmented. Even if you think about the Muslim world, it was very fragmented. You have in Central Asia two different kind of powers, like fighting against each other. The Abbasids were not in good terms with the Shah, Khorizm Shah. So they did not show themselves as unified against the Mongol. And it, that mm. was also something that we have to fight. Yeah, and then there were the Seljuks as well, right? I think they were the most prominent, but there were factions fighting, and I think the Mongols kind of pretty much took over the Seljuks as well, right? Yeah, the Seljuk, like in what is Anatolia today, they were not... Mm-hmm. It's not because it's a Muslim world that they were all together. And for the Christian, obviously, even more fragmented. So China, we think about China as the one, you know, one piece of land, but actually mm-hmm. at that time of the Mongol, they were at least three big different powers who didn't sort of support one another. So the Song China, the South of China would not support the Northern China. So they were even happy to see the Mongols, you know, conquering the North. Interesting. So you're saying basically this lot of fragmentation around Europe, fragmentation around Central Asia, North Africa, as well as China, basically enabled them to you know, go in and take over. Yeah, it's one important aspect. Maybe last important aspect is the, how the Mongol used new technology, military technology. So we think about mm-hmm. the Mongol as warriors, archers on their horses, right? But in fact, they became very soon extremely good at taking cities, fortresses with really high walls. It's very interesting to see how they managed that because they did that masters this how do you call it siege siege technology mm-hmm. in the early 13th century they had to learn and one of the first powers they submitted we call them the Tengut power is just south so it's today central west China there were a lot of people really good at building big engines for taking cities like trebuchets this kind of huge weapons and mm-hmm. the Mongol once they submitted absorbed all this technology forced the people to work for them and help them to build appropriate engines to attack cities and uh, they would mm-hmm. use these to attack cities in Central Asia to uh, destroy city walls in what is Russia today in the Russian principalities to attack Baghdad as well because they had this technology they had the people with them without that they would have never been able to conquer you know um, such a big I mean almost half of Eurasia yeah yeah so you're basically saying they took the military technology from China and then scale it up to other parts and use it to conquer different siege cities. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty cool. I've also heard about the Mongol horse riders a lot, and specifically the fact that they were super fast compared to some of their counterparts. I don't know if this is true or not. I came across this thing about how the Mongol rider could go very fast and long distances, and if they are thirsty, they would cut out a non-major vein of the horse, drink some of that blood, and then go on. I don't know if that's true, but maybe you can confirm. Yeah, it's true, but it's not something they would do very often it's just really when they are in very very difficult situation in fact with the conquest the thing is not to be fast only it's to endure and especially for days and days being away in very harsh condition new on new land as well and the mongol have something very special in the way they organize themselves they are very seasonal organization they go to war in winter time war starts in october more or less and had to hand somewhere around march if everything goes well. That's their war season. And that all the people around them, because for the sedentary culture in general, it's very different. War season is summertime. And the Mongols were amazing because they could, it meant that they would stand in very cold winter, crossed frozen rivers with their horses, their camels, and also where they were very good. And that's here, I have to say, it's a bit different from this 
sort of lonely, very quick, <clears throat> they would go with their... So it's a very oh. different way of doing war, you see. So they would go to the West, for instance, with all the families, all the hordes. They, Of course, the family would not be on the battlefield. They would be left a little bit far. I mean, not too far away, actually. Women could help also, so just sort of organize a camp. We have mention of women being on the battlefield as well. It's a very different. I would say the key word is not so much being quick and drinking horse mm. and <laughs> you're being able to endure very cold weather and drinking or and if we think think about drinking they would during summertime something that is called Iraq in Mongolian today. So it's fermented mare milk. Fermented mare milk is the best thing you can get when you eat a lot of meats, for instance. When you eat mm -hmm. a lot of carb in your diet, you need to balance your diet. Otherwise, you're going to get sick and, and die probably with kidney disease and stuff like that. During summertime, when they stop war, they just rest and they drink huge quantities of this fermented mare milk. And that was also very, very healthy for them and their families. And that would help mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The warriors, in fact. It's quite interesting. In terms of military technology or innovations, we talked about the importing of the Chinese siege cannons or whatever. We talked about the different seasonalities in terms of going in. They would go in the winter versus the summer. Endurance, I guess, speed in a lot of ways. What other military innovations or technologies do you think that the Mongol had or used that was really special compared to their time? They mm -hmm. are very good at uh, terrorizing people. So the Mongols are not mm -hmm. numerous. Even if it's hard to tell the numbers exactly, most of the time they were a few thousand, sometimes two or three hundred thousand Mongol warriors. But comparing to Chinese armies or Russian armies, it's really nothing. They have to pretend they are more numerous. So they had a lot of tricks to claim, to impress and show their numbers. They would put like filter figures on horses because from far mm -hmm. away, it looked like there are hundreds of warriors. In fact, most of them, or half of them, were felters figures like, you know, made of wool and fake figures. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. They would also make a lot of noise when they, so they impress people, like, like making a lot of noise, either... Like the third singing? Or... Yeah, it's okay. very impressive. This is, this is to scare people, really. And their idea, and this really with already in the time of Jenkins Khan, was that they want people to submit by themselves because it's better for them not to destroy cities. It's better to have people saying, okay, we submit, we agree with your new order, you are the new master. It's much more convenient. That's what they would like to have. So they really try to sort of impress and be being really scared yeah. terribly. That's interesting. And that kind of scaremongering technique reminds me of Sun Tzu, the military leader who said that appear strong when you're actually weak and appear weak when you're actually strong, right? They were basically doing the first one there. Yeah. Perfect. That would be perfect for the Mongol. That's absolutely true. Because they also pretend to be weak sometimes when they know they, they, you know, they turn their horses and start to root. Mm -hmm. of, they pretend they withdraw. People would follow them mm -hmm. thinking, well, we're good and they're withdrawing. But in fact, it's just a trick. So they would do that. Absolutely. The thing is, this image of violent barbarian warriors stick to them today. It worked well. But yeah, we have to sort of go behind and see what really happened. That's what we do historians. Yeah, it's all about perceptions, right? And I think a lot of our ability to understand reality, and this is going into metaphysics and philosophy a little bit, but a lot of our conception of reality 
reality is based on our prior perceptions and preconceptions about a topic. I think it's called a confirmation bias or something like that, that whatever you know about something in the past, you only see that those kind of things. If you're thinking about cars all the time, or you're thinking about buying a red Ferrari, when you go out, you basically see a lot more red Ferraris than, you know, five other people, right? So I guess there's something there about building that preconception and then perception in the minds of people and then using that as leverage, basically. I completely agree with you. Let's talk more about the innovation history of, or the technological and governance history of the Mongols and this composed of the Jakids as well as before the Jakids and, and, and everything. Can you tell us more about to sustain this empire? There's obviously some great stuff happening there. What are the kind of broader innovations or technologies that they developed in terms of laws, policies, hard tech, soft tech? Yeah, so tell me more about how they kind of innovated around these topics which is relevant to us today, perhaps? Yes, that's a very interesting question, also because it's a debate for historians. I'll, I'll explain this to you in a minute. The Mongols, as I said, absorbed a lot from their subject. They submit people mm -hmm. and immediately they try to figure out who were the best craftsmen, who were the best scientists, and they hire them. They don't transform them into slaves, they really hire them. And they ask them to be loyal to the Mongols, but then they pay them, they finance their research and everything. So they have this very interesting attitude towards sciences or technologies or innovations. As soon as they feel that it can serve their power, because of course that's the idea, is to be stronger, right? They will be very supportive, very interested. If I give you some examples, the Mongols were very interested in what is astronomy, cartography, geography today, but in a very modern sense of the term, right? They did not want these old maps with all the monsters everywhere. You see this medieval yeah. vision of the world. They wanted accurate maps and they realized, so what they did, first they built or they financed the building of observatories. In Mongolia today, there was one they built in what is Beijing today. They also finance a new huge observatory big building in what is Tabriz today in this area. Uh, Interesting. Next to Tabriz. And there you would have scientists working there, so astronomers, mathematicians, people also coming from everywhere, from, from Persia, from the Arabic world, very advanced for when it comes to cartography. Mm -hmm. So this is in the 12th, 13th century you're talking exactly. about? Exactly, mid-13th century. That's amazing. Big period of yeah. development really for astronomy, maths, cartography, it's second half of the 13th century first half of the 14th century. That's what we call the Pax Mongolica. That's really the period. The interesting thing is they forced people to work together. So they built team and people were sort of not necessarily happy to because they had to disclose their secrets, for instance. They had one way of doing, they had they were forced to work together. So we have a very interesting moment when Chinese scientists were forced to work with Persian scientists together and they produce specific objects, calculation objects for astronomy, calculation 
of object for algebra. So maps was also important. And of course, new maps with accurate design and with sort of grids just to calculate distances. Now I come to the debate. I said there's a debate here because not new for historians. We knew that. But before, historians used to say, well, this is not the Mongols. Actually, this is Chinese knowledge. This is a Persian knowledge, Arabic knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right, it's true. But without the Mongol, there would not have been buildings and objects, car- I mean, cartography. There are also stuff regarding arts. In my work, what I want to show to the people is that they, without them, without their will, without their money, without their energy, without their power, not, none of this would have been possible. What we think is the modern world, we think a lot about 15th, 16th century. We really believe I'm not the only one. We historians really believe that without the Mongol moments, it would have taken much more time, probably. That's why if you say, what did the Mongols change in terms of sciences themselves? Well, I think they finance everything. And for a long period of time, they had really long-term views. They would finance over generation. That's key. When you do research, actually, you know that it's not because you get a grant for two years that you're going to invent anything, right? So you need to have a real support behind for a long period, right? Yeah. But I guess in terms of if I was to play a kind of devil's advocate here a little bit, this financing of like state centralized finance of innovation, it's not really special to the Mongols only per se, right? Even four centuries before that, you had the eighth century, like ninth century Abbasid translation movement, very centrally state funded movement to translate all Greek texts into Arabic, right? And I know like even today to this day, I mean, if you see China, they're doing the CCP funded, a lot of kind of state funded innovation and, and research and that kind of there's multiple grants that a European Union and then everyone else gives and then on the empires before as well. So would you say that there was something special about this kind of financing or it's just the fact that they did it basically? I would say the scale is completely different because the scale of the Mongol Empire, the level of organization is, mm-hmm. is something that was never seen before. So the will to do it perhaps can be seen elsewhere and I think it's rather typical of ancient empires actually indeed I completely agree with you but uh, the scale here and the way also I mean the way they finance this over generation and generation another example regarding arts and paintings that's where also technologies change a lot Mongol loved portraits they wanted portraits everywhere. All the big manuscripts in which you have new writing of history, new time, the Mongol came, new dynasties, a new history actually also was sort of supported us by the Mongols. This new history writing was combined with new forms of portraits. The fact that there are miniatures mm-hmm. in all the manuscripts in the 13th, 14th century. This is also completely new. They they had also special requests. They loved painting. They loved statues. That triggered the artist. Textiles, they invented. So during the Mongol period, a new kind of textile appeared that we called often gold on gold. There are different expressions, but very refined, very precious textile made of silk, made of very precious cotton as well. They really asked for it. They financed this as well. So that's also something to know because before we saw textile silk, this is Chinese 
or this is the West after the 14th century. Well, no. I mean, Mongols were very active supporting the production of new textiles as well. So I think the scale, I think the taste of the elite, Mongols are the new elite. They, they shape the new Mm-hmm. They shape a new test and they shape a new aesthetics. That's very interesting. Any other examples you can think of in terms of the innovation side of things? Yeah, they did a lot for food and in connection with food, dishes, ceramics. The Mongols were also interested at court. They wanted to test different type of foods, a variety of dishes. And they, the people working in what we could, could call almost agronomy at that time, start also to transplant some fruits or eggplants from a region to another, certain species coming from eastern China. They try to grow them in central Iran or northern Iran. They would try very interesting new spaces. They would try to create new spaces, so to serve them, mm-hmm. but also because it was a very exciting. You feel in the sources that there's a kind of excitement for research. Let's try something because mm-hmm. the Mongols, they don't have taboos with food. So they are interesting. mostly interested in trying things. Mm-hmm. Finally, maybe you've heard of what we call the blue and white porcelain. It's beautiful, yeah. You see this blue and white, the real blue and white, because we have samples of before, but the real blue and white, the real production started under the Mongols. And we know that it's, of course, because they had the, the appropriate craftsmen, but they financed the building of new kilns for that. And also the shape of the, of the dish changed because the Mongols, they don't use very, very small one like the Chinese. They don't really use a really large one like you can see in the Islamic world. So people start to build new shape, like new, new forms in ceramics and blue and white became very popular during the Mongol period, really appeared at that time and everything. So all those things popping up everywhere. It's very astonishing. Okay. And you're saying the motivation behind the Mongol rulers and elite to fund these innovations and create the right environment was to basically consolidate more power for their empire and more technological advancement and stuff. Is that correct? I think we shouldn't be naive historians. Yeah, of course, it's because they want to be more powerful. It's to accept that power. Absolutely. I mean, it's very strange when we speak about, for instance, or their connection with religion. So the Mongols were also very open yeah. to different sorts of religions, right? And uh, it's not that it's necessarily tolerance. It's because for them, if a ritual works for them, it works. So they don't see why they should prohibit or, or pick up one instead of another. So that's what I call the absorption thing. Like they absorb everything. Religions, arts technologies, they would support everything when they believe that it would give them strength or for their future generations. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the motivations. The Mongols were not to, I mean, how can I put that? So today, I think we live very much the, the moment we are living on, like the present time. It's all about the present. At the time of the Mongols, the past and the future are enmeshed into the present. So they constantly think about their dead ancestors that have to be praised. All those rituals, all those offering to the ancestors, this is very important for them. It's something that has to be done. And also they think about future generation, your sons to be born or your daughters to be born. This is very important. Mm-hmm. for them. So they have this idea that what is good for them is good for the future generation too. It's good for the dead who are still living among us. And that's also a good balance for society, for human society in the world. So they are not excluding other people from this. Everybody can have a share. Everybody can be included into the strong Mongol society. Mm-hmm. It's very different from other. And this kind of interesting aspect of 
this liberalism, pluralism, absorbing ideas, whether religious ideas or technical ideas, if it works, is quite fascinating to me, especially given the scale of things, right? Like from Chinese societies to like Eastern European societies that are managing the whole shebang. And the more I read technology literature, I know that there is a huge correlation between liberalism in terms of ideas and innovative spirit or innovation that's there. And for me, it was quite interesting to read through your book and understand and see how that's so true, basically, for the Mongols and how they connect themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is really a time for innovation. That's how I see it. They gave people the mean to explore, to find, think the time, the good condition for it. And they think also, in a way, so producing new objects, new technology, new knowledge, new arts, this is something that is anyway shared by the society. So as it, they have a very collective mm-hmm. vision of harmony, like social harmony. So mm-hmm. um, they think that everybody can have its own share. And that's very important. That's how you motivate people. Everybody has a place in the society. Of course, again, we shouldn't be naive. This is according to the rank of the people. So there's this social hierarchy, of course. If you're a prince or if you're a member of the elites, if you're someone from Genghis Khan's family, of course, you'll receive more. But you'll have to give more in return also. So you have to share more because people will, will also expect you to share more and make things circulate. They have those big assemblies when they share, when it's wartime, the so spoils or the purse. Yeah. But then when it's peacetime, the income from taxation. You know, yeah. And they would share all this according to the rank of the people. But yeah. they, for them, it's very important to see things moving, to see the circulation of objects and people because it is also circulation yeah. of a good spirit of harmony, right? So you talk about Mongol economics in the book and you mentioned specifically about how this relied on circulation of these goods and redistribution of wealth from the Khan to the elites to the commoners. So is this some kind of like socialism that we're seeing here? Or like, yeah, can you elaborate on that more? Mongol economics is fascinating. Actually, there are in many ways I thought when I start working on this huge moment of trade exchange that we call Pax Mongolica that it was a bit like pre-capitalism and I discussed a lot with with my colleagues working on 18th century, 19th century, even early 20th century. I do believe there are differences, of course. Mongols were very liberal. They wanted to see things circulate. They did not develop high taxation mm-hmm. on exchange goods, on merchandise. But at the same time, they had this very specific spirituality, as I said, and this idea of sharing, which is very different from modern time. Yet, I think they had, they created new strategies to attract traders, for instance, which sounds very modern or very clever. So, two things. They realize that you cannot control entirely the economy. Clearly, you can't. I mean, even if you're the most powerful government on earth, or you have the most, you're running the most powerful empire, if you just build up monopolies and that's all, things will dry up, right? So the Mongol merchants need to attract or need to be attracted to their courts. They need to come to them and they need to be willing, actually, to trade and to trade new things to new people in new areas. We're speaking about it's a time when even the Italian, like Venetian merchants like Marco Polo, they would very rarely cross all of Eurasia. They would very rarely go to China. So if you really want to make them mm-hmm. good, you have to, first of all, sign treaties with them to protect their own traders. So they would protect foreign traders based on written treaties. They would mm-hmm. try to make the roads safe. 
So they don't have roads like the Roman, right? But in the steppe, there are passes. People know where to cross rivers, where to pass in between two hills and everything. So they would provide guards to protect traders and caravans. But also what worried the foreign merchants, the Italians, for instance, was the cost of transportation in between two points because it was hard for them to figure out. i give you an example. I reached Crimea. Now I want to go to the lower Volga. What is Astrakhan today, for instance? What kind of animals do I need to carry my stuff and how long it's going to take because they need to know in advance uh, at least to have an idea of the cost right so what the Mongols did they said to traders you come to me I will reimburse your transportation cost whatever they are so come to me and I'll pay you for your merchandise of course I pay you well but I will also give you the money you sort of had to invest for hiring camels and cards and everything in any case I'll buy your stuff too so they knew they would sell. You know you sell. You're not mm. worried not to sell or being left with all your merchandise. So they would develop all this. And finally, of course, they are very good with coinage. Yeah, yeah. And did you say that they redistribute wealth as well, and somehow from yeah. the state itself? Of course, wealth mm. retribution. So because of the sharing system, they had to redistribute to the elite. The elite would redistribute to their people, to their servants. The servant would redistribute to their families. So there's a very organized way of redistributing actually income at the level of the Mongol Empire. Women are completely part of the system, actually. I mean, they have their own income, they have their own traders, women of the elite, of course, because you have more information for them. Sure. And they were very, very wealthy. They had a lot of independent way of life. I mean, a very independent way of life. And, and they could show themselves on the public space. I mean, they are very public person, very public character. They're not hiding themselves. So, you, so it's a yeah, very modern society on that, for that. Okay, that makes sense. In terms of the Mongols and Jakids, we forget they also were the controllers of the Silk Road, right? And they had like lots of policies and governance around that. So can you tell us about what contribution the Mongols had on the continuation flourishing of the Silk Road and how they managed it through their kind of policymaking and taxation yeah. policy and that kind of stuff? So in my work, I focus on the Mongols in the West. We call them Jochids. They were different from the one in what is Iran and Azerbaijan today that we call Ilkhanid. So you have Jochid in the north and the northwest and Ilkhanid in the south. The Jochid were in control with huge territories between the Black Sea to almost Mongol, what is Mongolia today. Many lands, mm-hmm. they would, as I said, like protect the roads there, but they would also control the bridges. Where you can cross a river is always a key point because you don't need to mm-hmm. control the whole valley, right? It doesn't make sense. What you need to control is where you can cross the river. And there were many large rivers still in Eurasia, in Central Eurasia. So the Mongol would control all the lower valley. They would, their hordes would actually be there, live there. And mm-hmm. the merchants, the caravans would cross the hordes. They would come, they would sell, they would stay with them. They would settle for a while and get their money and then move either further east or back west. Not necessary to cross the whole empire. It was not necessarily interesting in terms of, you know, trade. You could sell your stuff in the lower Volga or lower Don or train today and then go back, right, to your country. So the Dutchies were very giving freedom to the merchant, freedom of movement. They would compete with their Mongol in the south, the Ilkhanids, who had much more trouble to control the road. Why? Because in the south, it's not only land road, it's very much sea road as well. The Mongol did not control the Indian Ocean. A huge part of the way was not in their hands. Mm-hmm. 
So for the trader, mm-hmm. it's always more risky to go south, to mm-hmm. go along the southern road, the Ilhani road up to China because they never know how long it would take because they were afraid of shipwrecks because they were also bandits on the road and they complain about that. Well, in the north, Mongols were more in control and it was known that in the early 14th century, this road, northern road, was safer. You say basically that this is the largest integrated market in pre-modern history, the network? Yeah, I think that that's a good way to put it. If we combine all the information we have from Western sources, so from mm-hmm. um, Italian merchants and bankers and senates, also political you know, sources, diplomacy, if you look at the document produced by the Jochits, the Mongols themselves, like treaties, they, they grant what they granted to. So we look all this. You look at the coins, I said, the very interesting coinage system. You look at the weight system as well. You look at the scale of the exchange, the number of products that were exchanged too. Even when we dream of the Cirque Road from the, you know, antiquity period, this is such a different scale. It's a much bigger, much more innovation. It's a very different time. And we do think what we call the Colombian Exchange, so early 16th century, especially mm-hmm. the development with modern globalization, is totally connected to the Mongol, I call it the Mongol globalization. It's very well known that Columbus, you know, was had read Marco Polo and really wanted to find a way to to a new road to India and all this I mean excitement about finding new roads, finding new wealth is really generated by the Mongol period. Like Marco Polo spent twenty years in the Mongol Empire, really tried to sort of convince mm. people around him. There's so much wealth there. You can go to India more easily. You can go also to China. It's very interesting mm-hmm. for such and such reasons. The thing, funny thing, actually in the West, nobody really believed Marco Polo at the beginning. And it was too <laughs> so in the West people were afraid of taking new risks. They would so we mm-hmm. debate that the Venetian Senate, for instance. There, people was, it took them, or the generates, it took them so much time to sort of make people confident enough to invest in new lands far away and everything. That's very interesting. I think you mentioned how Marco Polo went to the affluent cities in the Mongol Empire, like the Sarai and the New Sarai, you know, so can you talk more about the infrastructure and the economy of those cities and how that compared to other cities and modern cities? Yeah, that's interesting to think with the Mongols. So they are nomads and they don't say don't right but they build cities that's very interesting mm-hmm. they invest in new settlements especially in these areas where there were not so many like lower volga there was mm-hmm. almost nothing there they build up several cities most of them were called like with persian terms like sarai which means palace and mm-hmm. these settlements was mainly for craftsmen to stay near a river, for instance, with big kilns to produce, I don't know, ceramics. So they had to stay on one place. So it would be for craftsmen. The cities, those set- Mongol settlements, would be open also to visitors, ambassadors, people coming from far away, from the West or from China. People also used to mm-hmm. military way of life who would complain about nomadic way of life because it's very different. So they would be puzzled. We have a lot of interesting descriptions of coming from Franciscan and Dominican friars, the mendicant or mm-hmm. they would send yep. to the Mongol Empire. The friars were used to urban life, of course. They complain a lot about living a nomadic life, how difficult for how new it was for them. So they were always happy when they could spend some time in the city, in the settlements, because they felt that was more easier for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also for yeah. merchants, settlements were good for the merchants because they could sort of, if they are merchandise, they could leave them they felt protected. They were, you know, big caravanserai or places where they could leave their goods under protection. And finally, 
building religious buildings. So settlements were full of religious buildings, Buddhist temples, mosques, Christian churches, of course, also Jewish religious buildings. Fascinating how all those religious institutions flourished during the uh, mm-hmm. period. These cities, any of them exist today? Why is there no, like, I don't really hear about, like, Mongol architecture or anything like that, just like we do with Constantinople or Rome or even some of the Middle Eastern Levant cities? It's a key thing. I mean, and it explains also very much why the Mongols are not so well known, because what about their Mm -hmm. buildings and architecture? So there are different reasons for that. The first reason is it's a very nomad thing. When they were in difficulties, when they had to fight or had troubles, the first thing they would do is let the settlement, like, abandon the place. The Mongols, settlements are, can be useful, but if you need to survive because of the Black Death, because of war, because of harsh weather, settlement is not key. I mean, you, you can just leave it where it is. When they felt they was not useful to their power anymore, they would sort of leave the settlements, abandon mm-hmm. the settlements. Now, the thing is, it's something rather common in Central Eurasia for the Middle Ages. When a settlement is abandoned, you would reuse the materials to build something else. So all the bricks, right. all the stones, everything were reused by the population around, the villagers, the community. They would say, okay, well, let's build something else. I need more bricks for mm-hmm. my house anyway. So the material itself exists, but the city mm-hmm. are, are not there anymore. So that's quite fascinating. But that's the idea in the step, you don't have so much construction materials, right? It's not mm-hmm. to, you really have a team of craftsmen to produce bricks, for instance, or to uh, carry stones they would just reuse all this and everything disappeared there were still some we know in the 16th century some of the buildings then even 17th century everything had disappeared that's very interesting it's almost like this circular economy going on that everything is recyclable and reusable you know and let's use it for kind of future generations and that kind of stuff absolutely i completely agree i mean they saw that as something very normal that you reuse things you don't waste i mean this is those beautiful bricks you use them that's all so if you mm. move them to another part it made sense for them but of course that explains also why if you compare even with the timurids with other empires people felt wow they built nothing but no it's more (laughs) (laughs) i see i see i see yeah that's very fascinating actually that makes a lot of sense why there's less of physical continuity that you see by the mongols I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the Mongol foreign policy of the Horde and the Mongols, really. I think you mentioned that the Jachids manipulated the Mamluks, the Genoese, the Venetians, you know. <laughs> Can you tell me how they conducted their foreign policy with their peers from other lands and other empires? Yeah, my idea was really to show it was a one way of seeing history. I was told when I was a student, well, if there was a Pax Mongol guide, it's because of the Venetian, it's because of the Italians. If the um, Muslim world, the Islamic culture, thrilled and flourished in the 14th century because of the Mamluks. But in my book, I show the Mongol input, how they convinced people to come and trade in their land, for instance, how they convinced people that it's going to be safe for them, why it was still risky 
to do. How they also decided to ally with the Mamluks, so this big sultanate in Egypt and Syria, which initially fought against the Mongols to defend Egypt, because Egypt was one of the objectives of the Mongol conquest at some point mm-hmm. in the Mm-hmm. The Mamluk were uh, are still often seen as anti-Mongol and very enemy, actually. With the Mongol in the north, the Jochid, the situation was very different. The Jochid had very strong ties with the Mamluk. They allied with them because they saw they had a lot in common for trade, for religion, because the Khan ruler converted to Islam very early on in the 13th mm-hmm. century. He was the first Mongol ruler to convert to Islam, which means... We was it Burke Khan? Or? Yeah, Burke, exactly. Burke Khan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean yeah. that it would prevent other religions to be practiced or what, but still, uh, Islam was very important in the north. They had a deal with the Mamluks and they would allow them at least to send their slave traders to their lands and they would protect slave trade. It sounds really harsh to modern years, of course, but this is very specific slave trade, the Mamluk slave trade is very different from the modern slave trade. Transatlantic uh, slave trade they talk about, yeah. Very different. These were elite warriors trained to be part of the elite and even some of them could reach the highest rank of the states of the sultanate becomes yeah. so and these, yeah, there's much more social upward mobility basically with that Mediterranean slavery versus transatlantic slavery where you just kind of there yeah. and there's nothing. Yeah. It's very like important. Yeah. Very specific kind of we can call it slavery, but at the same time those young warriors, very good riders coming from the steppe, would be trained in Cairo, for instance, and would at the end of their career, they would be freed from slavery. The Mamluk Sultan is not a slave. He was in the past. He was, but he's free, of course. So it's a very strange, perhaps peculiar system, but it deeply, it, its roots, it's really in the Mongol Empire because without the agreement of the Mongols, the Mamluk Sultanate would have never been so flourishing. I mean, they would have probably destroyed very quickly. So this alliance is key between so the Mongol in the north, the Jochid, the Horde, and the Mamluk is really key to understand the development of Islam in the second half of the 13th and in the 14th century. While we have always this idea that the Mongols attempt to destroy Islamic civilization because they attacked Baghdad, mm. but just a really small part of the iceberg. Yeah, I think you see that. I'm going back to what you said about the nationalist literature from some of these parts of the parts of the world, like from the Turks, from the Russians, from the Arabs, come about and put Mongols the bad guys, right? But I think there's tons of original innovation and continuity, even in the Islamic sciences and education and funding, institution building that the Mongols basically did, right? I mean, the whole of the Mughals, right? You know, with Tamerlane, Babur, basically, and they were quite, they were Muslims, right? You know, that came in and continuation of the Mongols as well. So I think a lot of that is kind of lost by volition, by a lot of the kind of nationalist rhetoric that exists today and painting Mongols as the bad guys. Yes, you're right. But you see, I also believe and I've experienced that, that now people are really yeah. understanding the new views on the Mongol and then that historians can talk very freely about their research on this big Mongol empire was obscured for so long. Mm-hmm. And people really understand that they contributed to science and then they were not simplistic because they were nomads. This vision of a nomad, which was poor, barbarian guy, very aggressive, it's a 19th century vision, very colonialist, right? And today people yeah. have a very different vision of nomad. I see with, you know, when I do lectures, when I talk with my students, people now mm-hmm. are 
extremely interested in this mobile way of life, in the, this shifting yeah. mind the nomad have, the ability to absorb, and so their spirituality, their connection with nature. This is the holy mage. Yeah, yeah. And in a lot of ways, we're going back to that with after COVID and technological working from home with this digital nomadism, you know, just being El Salvador and you know, just work from the internet, get earned in crypto and just move around to a different city, right? So yeah, it's yeah, quite interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a kind of time connection now where we understand that. Yeah. yeah, it's a continuation. It's like a full circle, basically. But more specifically, I think I came across an example the other day on the Mongol influence. I think it was Ilkhanids, not the Jachids, but it was their funding, building libraries and specifically funding the, the Islamic theology of the Moraga school of Avicennism. Moraga was one of the cities the Ilkhanids controlled and they funded a lot of the school of Avicenna, who's like a big Islamic thinker, philosopher, kind of went about and they funded a lot of institutions, a lot of debates, a lot of literature and scholarship within that. So it's just a small example of how Ilkhanids were kind of Mongol continuation, but they funded specific Islamic literature and theology and even made like a certain school out of things really. So it's much more sophisticated than we actually kind of realize. Yes, absolutely. And this place you mentioned, Maraha, is where the observatory, one of the observatory was built, you see. And Interesting. it's so far from Tabriz. Uh, and, and there, there was, yeah, the library, because we often speak about how many libraries they destroyed, but Mongol loved books. They loved manuscripts. If you're a wealthy man, you have manuscript, or you want to see manuscript mm -hmm. with paintings and with, you know, produced by the best scholars of the time. So they find mm -hmm. True, and they were like almost conferences, those debates you mentioned. We have this in all the sources. Mongol love debate, love putting people together and ask them to debate, like a Buddhist priest, a Muslim sheikh, a Christian, uh, you know, a friar, Franciscan friar, all together, and they had to debate. I want to talk a little bit on something you mentioned, which was on Mongol land law. You touched on how that helped the agrarian development of Mongol subjects within the land. So can you elaborate on that a little bit what was mongol policies when it comes to land legal matters to the land and how that kind of helped the development of agrarian economies and, and all that sort yes well the mongols were very early on they were aware that agriculture needs of course water but special care and that it was very important for the herds for the nomad not to live too close to the villages right because they cannot talk to each other it's just because it's bad for the land to have horses you know running where you try to grow something I know better, of course, the, the case in the West, but so you have also Russian and rather villages and the Mongol herd, they would never go there. They will always try to be um, as far as possible from the farmlands. And they would also ask people to pay their taxes and what they produce to grow fruit or if you know how to, to produce silk, then that's how you pay your taxes. And uh, mm -hmm. they it was quite clever to do that. Although it's not a Mongol invention. I mean, we have cases also for the Abbasid period. But it's a very rational way to organize the economy because not everybody has access to coins. So actually, it can sound funny, but the taxation system sort of supported agricultural production. And on top of that, they would also finance scholars working on treaties on agriculture. So they were very interested in how to grow rice, or where, what kind of variety of rice you can grow in such area, for instance. So they also promoted a reflection on farming at, at a high level. That's very uh, fascinating. It's not because they were nomads. Mm -hmm. They destroyed fields, right? That's important to understand mm -hmm. that. 
they are actually in the other way around because they could they get income from agricultural production. So they would support this agricultural mm -hmm. production. So where it comes mm -hmm. from. And more specifically, how did taxation help with this agricultural production? They would ask people to pay with what they produced. It was a shorter way because if you, otherwise you ask people to pay by coins, but in the Russian principality... It's a flat tax. Mm, yeah, okay. not use coins. During Mongol period, coins appeared in the Russian principality, but that's Mongol innovation for the Russian. That, that will take time. Mm. Yeah, that was one thing. And the fact that they also recognize the importance of farming and they would protect. We have documents when you can see that a landowner would be protected mm -hmm. for paying certain taxes. I have trouble to pay my taxes. So people at court would sort of leave him like in peace for a certain period of time, would be allowed not to pay mm -hmm. on his land, on his like fruit trees or, you know, wheat trade because you need to be flexible. It's not like today things can change very quickly. Yeah. So experience that but during the middle ages it's even more complicated things can change in bad winter can almost destroy a local economy mongols mm -hmm. very flexible with that okay that's pretty interesting i think i want to start wrapping up in terms of our conversation so we talked about how sophisticated they were i mean it was a huge land empire from like all the way eastern europe ukraine to like korea and china and lots and lots of amazing stuff happening on tech innovation foreign policy economic innovations and and all that sort. Tell me more about how they kind of capitulated. What led to the downfall of the Mongols? You know, so we can start with Jochids as well as the Ilkhanates, basically. So how did we kind of lose all of that? How did the empire just go into such a downfall? Yes, that's an important question. Actually, it depends on the area. The Ilkhanid were the first mm -hmm. to abandon power in a way. They had a lot of internal issues. So it was in the 1340s. They had internal issues, mm -hmm. succession problems. And also, of course, they suffered from the competition with the Jochit in the north, did much better with the traders, as I said, and developed the northern route. So the southern route had, you know, was cut for a while. They were the first to fragment their states, their region, their power, they are fragmented. And then after mm -hmm. that, the Yuan, so really in what is China today, the eastern part of the Mongol Empire, had also suffered from, you know, a number of issues, political issues, but also popular rebellions. And, and finally, probably side effect of what we call the Black Death. So the mid-4th yeah. century pandemic, plague pandemic that also, of course, harmed the system, right? There are different reasons. But because I argue they were stronger, economically speaking, and they were more organized and they had better relationship with their sedentary subjects, they lasted longer. And actually, in fact, almost until the beginning of the 16th century, nomad remained powerful in the northwest of Eurasia. And what they, in my work, what I try to show also is that we have to give up this very common scheme of, okay, there's an empire, mm -hmm. there's a birth of the empire, then the empire is flourishing and then there's a decline. All those big complex political structures did not really work like this and they transform. It's much more a question of transformation. At some point, the term Mongol is not used anymore. Or at some point, people would move from an area to another. And that's what happened actually with the Mongols. They withdrew from certain areas, they would go to other 
that mm-hmm. area, they moved. In the north, they left, basically, they more or less left the Volga Valley and they would move, they moved to Central Asia, they moved to Crimea, where they were already, but then they stick there, they stayed there and, and they moved really north to the thousand Siberia too. Mm-hmm. So for all those reasons, also bad climate, bad weather, and of course, the outside world. It's not just the Mongol and that's all. They are yeah. constant connection with the outside world. And the Ottoman pressure, the Russian pressure, this is also something we have to take into account, of course. And they cannot control the outside world. The outside world change, they have to yeah, change. That makes sense, really. You also mentioned in the book that the Mongols defied the assertion that an empire cannot be ruled on horseback. Can you explain what you mean by that statement? Yeah, so this sentence, I've seen it so many times on so many leaves and in so many books. Mm-hmm. For people to understand that administration can be mobile because we have this idea, I mean, it's very popular idea that war is a mobile thing so nomads can do war but when it comes to administration mm-hmm. it, it's, it has to be in the hand of the sedentary people because you have to sit down mm-hmm. I mean it's very interesting the Mongol Empire the part I've, I know very well so the Georgians they never settle and their administration was a mobile administration and the settlement I mentioned Sarai and other places they were settlements for traders religious people and mm-hmm. not for administrators administrators you can write mm-hmm. in a tent you, you can even produce coins in a tent. I mean, you don't need to be, yeah. <laughs> you know, marble palace to administrate a huge mm-hmm. empire. That's that. Okay, okay. But, but, but if I can dig quickly into the specifics of how this works, right? So if you're like a nomad and you want to control lots of land, like wouldn't you build the judiciary of a place, the parliament, hospital administration, and economic unions and stuff those those institutions need to be sedentary or like are you saying that those are always moving as well so i'm just trying to understand practically how this works with ruling on a horseback basically yes well it depends for whom actually hospital or schools mm-hmm. is a very good example if you think about a village or t- a city of course the people there needs to have their own school their own yeah. mosque for instance or church and their hospital there mongol would not touch that and even better, they would give a lot of tax exemption for people who built school, city facilities and everything. So they would protect that. That's for the sedentary people. Mm-hmm. But now they have in their hordes mobile school. I mean, school can be mobile. I mean, nomads know that today too. They still they practice mobile school. So they have mobile, they even have mobile mosque or mobile church. They have, right. yeah. They have mobile hospital. I mean, doctor. I mean, scientists. People can can move too. For administration, it can be seen as an even better tool to be mobile. In fact, because when you have such a big empire, first of all, you need to control, you know, faraway places. So that's it's always better. You have to move, mm-hmm. uh, even in a sedentary empire, right? Things we think are so necessary to civilization or institution. When you look at the Mongol example, it's so funny because you see, but no, in fact, it's not necessary. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's quite interesting. And I think you mentioned about Ibn Khaldun's thesis as well, that, you know, three generations. So conquest, consolidation, and capitulation start off with nomads, then becoming more sedentary, and then becoming like, you know, very, very procrastinating and, and kind of degenerates, basically, right? I think it's interesting. It's around the 18th or 19th century. There was this idea in the Ottoman Empire, basically, and through the Ibn Khaldun work, that the Sultan has to embrace the nomadic spirit again, the conqueror spirit 
basically. So I think there was a brief period where I forgot which which sultan it was, but the sultan would actually go around in different cities, you know. And so instead of just being based in, say, like Constantinople, he would actually be traveling to the city, that city, that city, just to keep the kind of nomad spirit alive. So it's, it's quite interesting, basically, this whole kind of nomad versus sedentary debate. Yes, I think it's also connected to the idea that a ruler should be seen or not seen by his subject. The idea that can be good for is it good for a ruler to be very secret, to be far away from his subject, or is it better for a ruler to be close to the to go to this subject? So it's mm-hmm. every almost you know complex power has to re- raise this question and find different ways to yeah. answer it. In the case of the Mongols, it's interesting because at the same time it's different from what you described here, which is more closer to mobile. We call them itinerant monarchies, sorry, in the West. So when a ruler would go, would be mobile, in fact, like and go, yeah. king of France, he had to go and visit the cities. Never stayed in one place, so he go for a hunt, and then he go to a city, and then another city, and he mm. stays in his own palace. But the Mongols are a bit different because the subjects have to come and visit them. So the thing is, the Han is not mm. going to visit, for instance, Moscow. The Han would never, ever go there to Moscow, for instance. But the prince okay. okay. has to spend months at the Han's court and be with the nomads for a long period of time because the Mongol ruler wants to see his most important subject. But they, they had to come to him. The idea was not to go to him, you see? So he would do this seasonal round, like, you know, walking. The mobile court would move and then people would come, the subject would come, stay with them, and they would go back to their villages or city. Mm. Yeah, so... Uh, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you say that this mobile system of governance is not really sustainable? Because the, the Mongols really came up very fast and then kind of left very fast and became nothing versus if you see the British Empire, it's heyday, like 300 years, Ottoman Empire, 600 years, Roman Empire, obviously, you know, east to west together is like, what, thousand plus, right? So would you say that this kind of mobile system, yes, it's quite useful, but it's also not sustainable in the long run? Or First of all, the Mongol remain in power like in the north for the 300 years. The thing is, okay, it's, cool. not, it's not like a 70 years old, you know, moment, right? It's much more. Okay, okay, okay. Now, of course, okay. not speak about 1,000, you know, it's not a millennium, but well, let's say that it's also very specific of societies where you have nomads and sedentary people living together. That's the thing too, is mm-hmm. if you look at the world today, where where do you find the nomad? They are not, there are very few people living in very specific places, right? And even if you look at Europe in the Middle Ages, there were no nomads. There are no adeans. Mm-hmm. Where some people were like gypsies, but that's all. And yep. the Western visitors in the Mongol Empire would always say, these are not like gypsies. This is very special. This is different. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different period of time, for sure. It lasted enough, <laughs> I guess. And especially the legacy, in fact, is much deeper and lasted much longer than just the empire itself, because this legacy is about science, is about art, is about new new economy, new forms of trade, exchange. So I think it's important to distinguish, in a way, the Mongol Empire yeah. and what I call the, the Mongol exchange or the Pax Mongolica. I think these are yeah. two different diff timing. You know, the stories are closed, but still the legacy lasted until the 16th century at least and transformed into the modern world. 
Yeah, that's quite interesting. And I think where, like you said before, the debate on the legacy comes is that those labeling, and can you label those innovations and label those things as Mongol, or do you label them as Persian or Chinese, right? Whose legacy is it basically, right? So that's the yeah. kind of the constant debate. Yeah, it's a okay. debate. Cool. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I want to wrap this up. So last question in terms of this beautiful conversation we just had. So if I'm a 21st century average person living today, just going about my life, waking up in the morning, doing an office job, going through COVID and just living a life in the 21st century in some urban city or, or something like that, whether it be East and the West. What do you think that the average 21st century person take away, you know, from the legacy and history of the Horde, basically? What's applicable to us today? Like if there's one or two key takeaways that he or she should be basically aware of that's relevant to them today from this entire history of the Mongols. Yeah, what, what would that be kind of one or two key takeaways? Well, I would say two or three things. One is, of course, the fact that the connection with nature. Today, it's very, it becomes at last obvious in, you know, the Western world. Climate change and stuff, yeah. Yeah, we have to change our, you know, many, our way of doing, our way of producing our economy and everything because we have to take care of the nature. And this is really interesting because for the Mongols, this is all the time a question like, how many horses do you have here on this pasturage? Is it good for the, for the nature? or not where can you drink water and when you do that you have to be respectful for the environment um, mm. because of their spirituality of course they see spirits in the nature so but yeah. i think that's something that rings a bell i mean for me it's so important to have this connection with the nature and this this is one aspect the other one it's more connected to democracy in a way mongol mm. i mean that's something i really wanted to show my book the fact that democracy needs debates it needs time so the Mongols had this ability when there's succession movement to take sometimes months, sometimes years to decide on a successor, on a new government. Mm. And it was seen for long in the scholarship as something very negative. Or oh, they cannot decide or they take too much time. It's not good. It means that their system is not sustainable and not good. But I think it's the other way around. Actually, you need time to, to debate and to discuss a succession system that goes too fast without even in discussion. Oh, it's just the son of the king. So it's okay. Now let's move on. Mm. It's not it's not healthy system. Of course, it's not the democracy the way we live it today, you see. But still, this is very interesting to see how they were able to, to sit at the table for hours and discuss and not fight. I mean, it's fight but with yeah, words. Like a proto-democracy based on consensus mechanisms. Finally, maybe I would say we human societies have the ability to, to change and to adapt ourselves. And as a nomad, shape-shifting people, I think it's important to know all the examples of different sorts of political and cultural system in the past for the young generation. Mm -hmm. This means that there are other possibilities. There are plenty of examples. There are plenty of, you know, new options. So don't feel like you have to reproduce something. It was always like this. Who knows? Tomorrow's world might be maybe a nomad's world, right? And it's good to keep this, you know, in mind, I think. Yeah, looking forward to the digital nomad feature, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's there. Fantastic. With that note, we'll wrap it up. Marie, thanks a lot for being on the Innovation Civilization Podcast. All the best. I'll maybe looking forward to your, having you again, and maybe on your next book, basically. Thank Thank you so much. I enjoyed this very, very much. Brilliant. Thank you. 
Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.